This episode is brought to you by EarthBreeze, the one New Year's resolution I've ever been able to stick to. It's completely transformed my laundry experience. Gone are the big, heavy plastic jugs, the measuring out of detergent every time. All I do is grab an EarthBreeze wash sheet. All I do is grab an EarthBreeze eco sheet. It looks just like a dryer sheet, except it's slightly less dry. It's ultra concentrated detergent. I throw it in the wash and that's it. Never think about it again. Laundry comes out great, clean, fresh smelling, no harmful chemicals or bleaches or dyes or anything in there. If you want to change up your laundry game this year, right now my listeners can get started with EarthBreeze and save 40%. Go to earthbreeze.com slash drilled, that's E-A-R-T-H-B-R-E-E-Z-E dot com slash drilled for 40% off your subscription. This is Maria Aguinda, an indigenous woman in Ecuador, singing about the damage that oil companies have done to her community. She was the lead plaintiff in the case against Texaco and then Chevron in Ecuador. It's usually referred to as the Aguinda case after her. In the decades since the case began, there have been various attempts alternately to lionize and discredit her, to cast her as a victim of the oil companies or as a pawn of the plaintiff's attorneys. There is a mountain of situations like this in this case, where one side says one thing, the other side says the exact opposite thing, and there's no way that both could be true. These sorts of things started to really pile up in 2008 five years after the case had initially kicked off again in Ecuador. Basically, to close a pit required eight different steps. This is Ricardo Reyes Vega, who led Chevron's legal team in Ecuador on this case. In this video with lots of cheesy sound effects, he's explaining the steps that Texaco took back in the 1990s to remediate its drill sites in Ecuador. You had to take the oil out. You had to clean the sludges. You had to treat the water and take the water out. They had to pass tests of the water. You had to solidify uh, the base. Then you had to put new dirt and revegetate. Around the same time that the case against Chevron was filed in Ecuador in 2003, the government of Ecuador filed a criminal complaint against Reyes Vega and another lawyer working for Chevron on the case, Rodrigo Perez Palares. The complaint alleged that the two had falsified documents around Texaco's remediation work. You might recognize Perez Palares's name from episode two. He was the Texaco attorney meeting with the president at his beach house to discuss the company's troubles back in 1994. In 2003, the government was questioning whether the 1998 document releasing Texaco of all future liability for its operations in the country was the product of fraud. That complaint was thrown out in 2006 for lack of evidence and then refiled in 2008. At that point, Vega and Pilates were indicted for conspiracy to fraudulently certify Texaco's cleanup. 
Chevron says this was all rigged up by the plaintiffs and points to it as a clear indication that the government and the courts under President Rafael Correa were in cahoots with the plaintiffs, that there was no way they could get a fair trial in Ecuador. Here's Randy Mastro, an attorney who's been working on this case for Chevron since 2009. He got Ecuadorian authorities without any basis whatsoever to bring criminal charges against two of the old Texaco lawyers um, who were involved in negotiating the releases when Texaco left the country in the early 90s. Those two lawyers faced criminal charges. They couldn't even travel. One of them was had to leave family in Ecuador, all right? On bogus criminal charges, they had done nothing wrong The he in that sentence is Donziger, and it's striking how much Mastro's description of what happened to these lawyers in Ecuador matches how Donziger describes his situation today. I cannot travel. I don't have a passport. Um, I cannot leave my apartment. This kind of he said, he said has been going on for years in this case, with each side calling out the tactics of the other, each side trying to get the other to flinch. In an outtake from a documentary about the case, Donziger talks about this dynamic between legal teams. We have to keep pushing on all fronts at all times. That's simple. All fronts at all times. Push, push, push. It's just a matter of force. It's pure force. Who can put the most pressure and who can resist? It's just like, you know, all this bullshit about the law and facts, you know, yeah, that factors into it because that affects the level of force. But in the end of the day, it is about brute force. Who can apply the pressure and who can withstand the pressure? And can you get them to the breaking point? It's the only way to litigate a case against a powerful company on behalf of people who have no power. That pushing was happening in the legal sphere, of course. As the case dragged on, each side accused the other of obstruction and delay tactics. But both sides were also meeting with judges and playing politics, both in the U.S. and in Ecuador. And the case was really playing out in the press. By 2008 and 2009, the plaintiffs seemed to be winning on all fronts. Welcome back to Drilled Season 5, La Lucha en la Jungla. If you haven't listened to the first three episodes, you're going to need to do that for this one to make any sense. Today, we're going to get into how this case played out in the press and how that played into the verdict in Ecuador. All of that coming up right after this quick break. In 2019, the Washington Post reported on the remarkable case of a woman who'd spoken out to make sure that the man who sexually assaulted her was brought to justice. The Post's new investigative podcast explores everything that happened after. It's called Canary. The Washington Post investigates. You may have seen their cover art in the podcast apps. I love it. Canary is a podcast about what happened when that unusual public warning connected to women and how that warning led to a devastating allegation about a powerful man in the D.C. criminal justice system. You can find Canary, The Washington Post Investigates, right now wherever you get your podcasts. 
New Year's resolutions are almost destined to fail. I resolve almost every year to work less and we all know it's not going to happen. <laughs> but one thing I have been able to stick to and you can too is switching up the way you do laundry in 2024 and grabbing Earth Breeze. I know what you're thinking laundry is not so fun. Those huge, heavy plastic jugs measuring out the right amount, getting goo all over the place. It's annoying. EarthBreeze Eco Sheets totally changed the game. Unlike powder or liquid, EarthBreeze actually looks like a dryer sheet, but it's ultra concentrated laundry detergent. And it's super easy. You just throw it into your laundry and that's it. There's no measuring, there's no lugging anything around. Your laundry comes out clean. It smells great. I love it. It's genuinely made my life easier. It's also dermatologist tested, hypoallergenic, free of bleach and dyes. So it's perfect for every load. You'll never run out of detergent again, thanks to Earth Breeze's easy, flexible subscription. You can adjust, pause, or cancel at any time with no hidden fees or penalties. And you save a whopping 40% when you subscribe. Plus shipping is always free and Eco Sheets are packaged in a slim cardboard envelope that saves a ton of space. It also gets rid of one more plastic thing in your life. And the company has donated over a hundred million loads of laundry and counting to those in need. Right now, my listeners can get started with Earth Breeze and save 40%. 440. Go to earthbreeze.com slash drilled. That's E-A-R-T-H-B-R-E-E-Z-E.com slash drilled for 40% off your subscription. Hi, it's Amy here, and I'm excited to tell you about a new podcast from APM Studios and Western Sounds called Ripple. Such a good idea, this show. In the aftermath of major disasters, there is always a swarm of media attention. The public is captivated by breaking news, there's coverage and controversy, and then the cameras and the public just move on. But the stories are not finished. Ripple is a new series investigating the stories we were told were over. In season one, the reporting team traveled hundreds of miles across the Gulf Coast to learn the ongoing effects of the 2010 Deepwater Horizon oil spill, which are still impacting many coastal residents more than a decade later. You can listen now to Ripple wherever you get your podcasts. In 2007, William Languish was getting ready to run a big feature in Vanity Fair on the case against Chevron in Lago Agrio. He had done his homework, he'd gone to the town and to the remediation sites, he'd met with various scientists, he'd talked to the lawyers on both sides. The last thing he needed was responses from Chevron to a list of technical questions. With a list of questions that I assembled with Oscar's help, very technical ones, they were site-specific, how the remediation went and then what the findings were during the sort of opposing sample sampling that was done during the, the, the court case. Mm -hmm. They said 
that they wanted to talk to me and they wanted me to come. So I said, look, I'm happy to talk to you, uh, but, but only if you answer those questions first. Seven years later, those questions became a weapon that Chevron used to question Languish's journalistic integrity, mainly because he asked Donziger for his input on them, which frankly is a little weird. But Languish explained that he needed Donziger's input on some of the more technical questions for accuracy and that he was hoping Donziger could help him phrase the questions in such a way that Chevron would feel more compelled to answer. At any rate, here's what happened as he was working on the story. Answer those questions, yes or no. Tell me what what your response is. And if you answer the questions, I'm very happy to come. At that point, for they never, of course, answered the questions. They were very specific questions. Yeah. And, and then they went after Condé Nast. But they had Graydon Carter. And Graydon Carter had balls. Graydon Carter, of course, was the longtime editor of Vanity Fair. Those are the days when Graydon, it was the, kind of the last years of Graydon Carter being like, don't mess with Graydon Carter. So when the, when, they, when the threat of lawsuit came in, when Chevron started pulling that stuff and threatening, you know, basically saber-rattling, he stood up to it. And we went through, we did go through a verification process. The The piece was in no sense affected by that process. There was absolutely no censorship of any kind. Um, but what did happen is that I, in that piece, had lines that were intentionally surreal and facetious. Anything that wasn't absolutely factual had to leave. So the effect of that on the piece, at the time I thought it basically dulled the piece down, like who the hell wants to read this thing? It's just dull. It has no life to it anymore. And maybe Chevron had that effect. Although recently, and because of Donziger's you know, current troubles, I'm saying maybe six months ago, I read the piece again. I think that's a pretty damn good piece. It actually isn't, wasn't as bad as I thought it was at the time. That piece triggered an uptick in media attention on the case which kept building in 2008. Then in April that year, the two Ecuadorians who'd been leading a lot of the work on the ground, Luis Llanza, who we met in episode two, and Pablo Fajardo, were awarded the prestigious Goldman Environmental Prize. Buenas tardes con todos y todas. Hace más de 20 años, inicié mi proceso de formación y lucha por la defensa de los derechos a la vida I happened to be living in San Francisco at that time and was actually at this award ceremony. I remember Luis and Pablo getting a standing ovation from the crowd. This was happening right in Chevron's backyard, and they weren't super pleased about it. They took out a full-page ad in the San Francisco Chronicle calling Fajardo and Yansa frauds. But it didn't seem to work. The press continued to stack up in favor of the plaintiffs. Now we want to go to Ecuador, where an epic lawsuit pits an American oil giant against a group of Indians from the Amazon rainforest and environmental activists. We turn now to Chevron, the oil giant based in California that's being accused of promoting geopolitical blackmail in its effort to stave off a lawsuit, accusing it of contaminating the Ecuadorian Amazon rainforest. It's been many years now since residents of Ecuador... In response, Chevron amped up its PR and lobbying efforts. Its lobbyists began pushing against a trade deal that would benefit Ecuador. And in an email dated September 2008, various Chevron PR folks are going back and forth with one of their external publicists, a guy named Chris Guides, who at the time was with the firm Hill & Knowlton, about a report that they're preparing that cast doubt on the Ecuadorian plaintiffs 
and on some of the evidence that they've presented in this case. They're also cracking jokes about not wanting to eat anything that comes out of the water in Lago Agrio. A lot of the report that the PR team is working on and talking about in these emails seems to focus on the science in the case. As we heard last time, it's common in Ecuador for both plaintiffs and defendants to commission their own expert reports and submit those to the court. And both sides did. The plaintiffs hired a U.S. firm called Stratus Consulting. Here's one of their experts, Douglas Beltman, talking to 60 Minutes. It's a disgrace. Um, They treated Ecuador like a trash heap. We have a little stream here. Doug Beltman worked for the EPA on Superfund sites in the U.S. He's now the scientific expert for the people suing Chevron. Are you saying that Texaco never could have gotten away with this in the United States? No, absolutely not. It, It wouldn't have happened in the United States. And if it had happened, they wouldn't have gotten away with leaving it here for 30 years. And here is a Chevron-appointed expert, Pedro Alvarez, professor of civil and environmental engineering at Rice University. When Texaco left Ecuador, the sites that it operated, I would consider, represented a relatively safe scenario for, with regards to potential impacts to human health, both because of the measures that they took to contain and clean up any contamination, and because of the nature of the contaminants that have very little mobility and therefore little probability to reach a potential receptor. On the charge of lasting environmental damage. That is a vastly exaggerated charge that is unsupported by the evidence. You can see why the judge might want a report from an independent expert. The court appointed a guy named Richard Cabrera. He was tasked with taking and testing samples from all of the former well sites and drafting a report about which sites had been remediated, which sites were still contaminated, and how much it would cost to clean everything up. He comes up a lot in this story from here on out, including in Chevron's PR emails. Just a couple weeks after the Chevron reps were emailing about Cabrera and this report, Chevron's longtime PR consultant, Sam Singer of Singer Associates, sent the team a new strategy. It breaks down into three key areas to focus on. One, Corruption in Ecuador and Korea as the strongman of Ecuador. Two, counterattacks against the plaintiffs, including questioning the funding and motives of Cabrera, Donziger, and Ecuadorian lawyer Pablo Fajardo. Three, Petro Ecuador is the real culprit. It's a full court press. There are four separate PR agencies, including singers and they're coordinating with Chevron's PR team. It includes plans for all forms of media and advertising, and even money for a front group. Or as Singer puts it, quote, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce or another think tank or organization to create an organization solely devoted to addressing the issues of Ecuador and actively attacking its positions on business, the media, international loans, and socialist policies. But before this strategy could deliver results, the plaintiffs continued to pick up some wins. First, a bill that extended trade benefits to Ecuador, Peru, Colombia, and Bolivia, a bill that Chevron had been lobbying against, it passed. I thank you all for coming. I am pleased uh, that legislation extending the Andean Trade Preference Act has made it to my desk, and I'm looking forward to signing this piece of legislation. 
Then in 2009, a documentary on the case called Crude was announced. In March, the Chevron PR team was strategizing again, and Chris Guides wrote, quote, Our LT long-term strategy is to demonize Donziger. This film provides us a great opportunity to do so. But before the film came out, 60 Minutes aired its special on the case. These are people who never believed they had a right to sue an American company in their own court system. Yeah, but you know what Chevron says. They say that this is being driven by a New York plaintiff's lawyer, and they don't mean that as a compliment. I'm well aware of that. They've taken out advertisements in the Ecuadorian press with my name trying to attack my reputation. What do you think of that? Well, I think that it puts me um, in the membership, frankly, of a very distinguished club of people. With the media narrative spiraling out of its grasp, Chevron brought in the big dogs, the law firm Gibson Dunn. In fall 2009, the firm was just wrapping up a landmark case for Dole, the food company, which had also been fighting a damages suit in Latin America for decades. Nicaraguan banana farmers had sued the company for knowingly spraying their fields with a pesticide that causes sterilization. They won in a Nicaragua court, but Gibson Dunn attorneys argued that that court had no jurisdiction over Dole, an American company. Uh, when did you get involved in the case? What year? Late 2009, early 2010. That's Randy Mastro again. He led Gibson Dunn's work for Chevron on the case in Ecuador. Okay, and what were, you know, what was sort of the task? Um... Gibson Dunn was uh, asked to join the uh, team of outside counsel uh, representing uh, Chevron in connection with uh, the litigation uh, in Ecuador and in connection with uh, trying to find out you know, uh, the truth about what was going on in Ecuador. By this point, not only was the media tipping in favor of the plaintiffs, but President Correa had been publicly supportive of the suit as well. Luis Llanza in Ecuador says it wasn't even so much that Correa was a great friend to the plaintiffs. He just wasn't as much in the pocket of oil companies as previous Ecuadorian presidents had been. Los gobiernos anteriores siempre estaban... Um, Parcializados a favor de la compañía. Previous governments were always biased in favor of the company, he says. Nosotros hicimos muchas acciones en Quito. We had to have a lot of actions in Quito, with marches, meetings, press conferences, meetings with politicians, all of that. Mucha, mucha, mucho trabajo para neutralizar a los gobiernos. A lot, a lot, a lot of work to neutralize the government, just so they didn't bow completely to the company. When Correa was elected, though, 
He visited the area and talked to the people and realized the magnitude of the damage the company had done and that the struggle we had been carrying out for more than a decade was just. And he decided to support it. And on top of all that, in 2008, Ecuador had ratified a new constitution one that gave equal rights to indigenous people and that included a radical new idea, the rights of nature. Ecuador was the first country to include these rights in its constitution. At some point, we're going to do a whole season on rights of nature because it's fascinating and it's really become an interesting new legal tool. But in broad strokes, if you think about private property rights and how they ascribe control over nature to whatever human has purchased this piece of land, rights of nature says, forget that. Nature has its own rights. All life forms have the right to exist and to continue living. And here's where it gets interesting from a legal perspective. It says that legally, we, the people, have authority to enforce these rights on behalf of ecosystems. The ecosystem itself can be named as the defendant. It's hard to imagine Chevron or really any oil company being happy about this kind of thing. And so in 2009, with multiple PR firms and a new legal team on board, the company started to tell a different story. A bitter environmental lawsuit against Chevron, the second largest oil company in the United States, appears to be entering its critical phase in Ecuador. First, they hired former CNN reporter Gene Randall to host a mirror image version of the 60 Minutes documentary with their side of the story. Chevron asked toxicologist Thomas McHugh to study the issue. The health effects that have been reported are attributable to exposure to bacteria, which is widespread in the drinking water sources. They're not attributable to petroleum exposure. No doubt about that. There's no doubt in my mind. Despite the claims. That's correct. There are fears such findings may be trumped by politics. Ecuador's president, Rafael Correa, loudly supports the case against Chevron. At Correa's instigation, with the support of the Amazon Defense Coalition, seven Ecuadorian officials who signed Texaco's environmental liability release face criminal charges. He's talking about the attorneys we mentioned at the top of this episode, Ricardo Reyes Vega and Rodrigo Perez Palares. Along with seven Ecuadorian officials, they were accused of tampering with a release form that had become pretty central to Chevron's defense in this case. Shortly after that 1994 meeting we mentioned in episode two, where Texaco's lawyer was meeting with the president and various environment ministers, the government came to an agreement with Texaco about remediation. Here's Chevron spokesperson Kent Robertson explaining that arrangement to NPR in late 2008. Texaco held a 37% interest in, in the consortium, with its majority partner being PetroEcuador. Texaco has not operated in Ecuador for 18 years. When it was time for Texaco to depart Ecuador, the, the parties sat down and worked out a, a remediation program where Texaco would address its proportionate share of the consortium, 37.5%, and PetroEcuador assumed responsibility for the balance of the operations. 
1998, after they had remediated 37.5% of the pollution, Texaco submitted documentation to the government. And the government signed a document releasing the company from any further cleanup. Again, the argument the plaintiffs make, and that the lawyer and researcher Judith Kemmerling made to us as well, is that Texaco was the operator. And that means they set everything up and they taught everyone how to do things. They created the oil industry in Ecuador, and they set a low standard for environmental responsibility. I asked Randy Mastro about that. We've had a few people kind of float this idea of like, yes, okay, technically Petro-Ecuador has been doing all of this stuff, but, you know, it was Texaco who trained them, and it's Texaco who built the whole system. What, what is the response to that kind of line of thought? Wow, that, that is... Um revisionist history and, um, you know, trying to put the blame where it doesn't belong. Um, Texaco got kicked out of the country starting in 1990. Texaco spent, you know, back in the early 90s, uh, you know, 40 plus million dollars on remediation and and other relief. Um, And and in in those days, that, that was a lot of money. Um, and in independent testing services confirmed that Texaco did what it was supposed to do. Like a lot of things in this story, this is kind of true if you squint at it for long enough. Texaco began exploring for oil in Ecuador in 1964, thanks to an agreement with the military junta that controlled the country at the time. The company struck black gold in 1967. At that time, Texaco was in a partnership with Gulf Oil, and both companies were eventually acquired by Chevron. In 1974, Ecuador formed a state-owned oil company, which would later become Petro-Ecuador. Texaco and Gulf each gave up a portion of their ownership to the new state oil company, and then in 1977, Petro-Ecuador bought Gulf out, and they became the majority shareholder. Texaco retained ownership of 37.5% of the concession. That's why that number keeps cropping up. But it continued to be the operator overall of all of the consortium's exploration and production assets until 1990. In September 1988, Petro-Ecuador alerted Texaco that it intended to take over as operator by 1990. In 1990, Texpet and Petro-Ecuador entered into an agreement to transition operations of the oil fields from Texpet to Petro-Amazonas. Texaco retained its minority stake in the concession until its original contract expired in 1992. And in 1994, Texaco's lawyer was being flown in Petro-Ecuador's plane to the president's beach house. which doesn't exactly sound like they were kicked out of Ecuador. Here's Mastro again. So a a professional uh, uh, and and a company expert in in doing these things got kicked out of the country and remediated the wells that uh, it was responsible for. And at every level of the Ecuadorian government, um, there were releases for that activity, right? Then, uh, over the next 20 years, because Ecuador kicked Texaco out of the country, only Petro-Ecuador drills and spills. Um, No no oversight, none of the uh, the kind of, you know, professionalism that that 
might, might be expected, you know, um, just drilling and spilling to make money for Ecuador. Just a reminder, here's Judith Kimmerling on what she saw when Texaco was drilling professionally in the Ecuadorian Amazon in the 1980s. The company had just dug a hole in the ground, dumped their toxic drilling waste, and then abandoned it in the rainforest. And when you abandon toxic waste in the rainforest, uh, some of it seeps into the ground. You also get a lot of rain, so it overflows into the surrounding areas. And I was appalled. Mastro and his firm were hired in late 2009. The 60 Minutes special had come out. Ecuadorian attorneys Luis Llanza and Pablo Fajardo had gotten the Goldman Environmental Prize. Ecuadorian President Rafael Correa had voiced public support for the case, and the Constitution of Ecuador had been changed to include the rights of nature. A documentary about the case by an award-winning filmmaker was about to debut at Sundance. And the balance of power in this case was about to shift again. Next time on Drilled. No way would, he, would any rational person, he's very rational, jeopardize things by cutting corners. He did nothing. He didn't bribe anyone. He has a big mouth. And he mouthed off this guy, Joe Berlinger. I think if I had it to do over, I would advise my client to completely protest the trial. And unfortunately, Stephen didn't have that option because Stephen lives in New York and he's subject to the jurisdiction of the court and he has to defend the case. But my clients did have that option, and that was not a card we chose to play. You know, I'm not trying to encourage you guys to focus on the misconduct. I think that's what Chevron wants us to all be focused mm-hmm. on. But the point I want to make is that, you know, while I think that the actions against Stephen are excessive, I don't think that he's just a victim because he's a human rights defender. I mean, I think that narrative is very simplistic. Drilled is an original production of the Critical Frequency Podcast Network. It's created and reported by me, Amy Westervelt. My co-reporter on this season is Karen Savage. Our editor is Julia Ritchie. The show's editorial consultant is Reka Murthy. Mixing and mastering by Mark Bush. Original score by B. Beeman. Special thanks to Larissa Ikeda, Trevor Gowan, and Emily Gertz. Our fact-checker is Wudan Yan. Our First Amendment attorney is James Wheaton with the First Amendment Project. Our artwork for this season was created by the talented Matt Fleming. If you are a Patreon subscriber, thank you. Your money is helping to make this season. As a special thank you, we will be putting bonus content in the Patreon feed and also releasing episodes early there. If you're not a member and you want to support our work, please check out patreon.com slash drilled. That's it for this time. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.